everybody, and welcome to another edition of Entrepreneur Rx, where we help healthcare professionals own their future. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Entrepreneurs Rx. Today, I'm really excited to chat with Dr. Lyle Berkowitz, whose paths we have crossed, it seems like, for years. Lyle is the founder and CEO of KeyCare, the nation's only virtual care company built on the Epic platform. He has more than 20 years of experience as a primary care physician, a health system executive, and informatician before these things were even existed, a healthcare innovator, and a serial entrepreneur. Previous roles include founder and chairman of HealthFinch, chief medical officer at MD Live, our old competitor, and director of innovation for Northwestern Medicine in Chicago. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. Thanks. All right. As I mentioned earlier, so Lyle and I have already spent a few minutes either re-getting to know each other, getting to know each other. But Lyle, give folks a little bit, start early, because you've got a really unusual background, because there weren't a lot of engineers going to medical school when you were an engineer going to medical school. So catch everybody up here, the pretense to all this. Yeah. So listen, I grew up in the 80s when the computers were coming out and you know, mostly video games, but started doing programming on the Ataris and other low computers that we could use and took a couple of computer classes and went into biomedical engineering at Penn, very much thinking I was going to be a doctor and thinking, hey, maybe I'll invent the $6 million man. But turns out I wasn't that great in mechanical or electrical engineering, but I was really good at computer engineering. And in biomedical engineering, it's sort of jack of all trades, master of none. You either have to go and get an MD or a PhD to really focus on what you want to do. And so I had a path ahead of me. My dad was a doctor. And so I really wanted to be a doctor my whole life. And so that was easy, except I get to med school and I'm like, I'm not sure exactly what I'm doing. Where am I going to specialize? How am I going to still do my computer stuff? I was fortunate, as often happens, and I have some you know, mentors in my life, and I did a lot of computer programming, mathematical modeling at Penn, and my senior year, I worked for a doctor helping build out educational type of things for his students, and he recommended that when I go to med school at University of Illinois, that I uh, connect with his old friend, Arthur Elstein. It was a PhD, actually, but the guy was the founder of the Society for Medical Decision-Making. He was in this early field of medical informatics, applying computers to healthcare, and he was studying it from a research perspective. Arthur became my mentor and boss for four years. I was his research assistant, and he brought me into this world of computer-based decision support tools. And then he introduced me to his buddy, Bob Greenis, who was the head of one of Harvard's NIH-funded informatics facilities. And Bob Greenis let me come and spend a few months in his fellowship lab as a sub-fellow at, at Harvard for a couple of months, uh, my senior year in med school. And all of a sudden, I realized that this is what I wanted to do, was to be a doctor who understood technology and how to apply it to make life easier and better for both doctors and patients. So you got your informatics degree as well, post-residency. I, no, I did not. I did the School of Hard Knocks in Informatics. So I did you know, what we call the sub-fellowship my fourth year, a couple of months, like I said, in this program, um, but did not get a, a formal degree. What I found was I didn't want 
a PhD in informatics. I didn't want an academic degree in informatics. What I was interested in was what we called applied informatics, you know, the real doing the work, not being a research expert in informatics. And so what happened is after in med school, I did a lot of informatics research uh, and work. And then in residency, I was the resident who is on all the computer committees and helping them decide how to choose which EMR to use, et cetera, and the local computer geek. When I applied and you know, got the job at Northwestern to be a primary care doctor, I said, hey, I'd like to be the director of technology as well. And they said, what does that mean? I said, I think computers are going to be important. It's about 1995 now. And they're like, the internet had just started. They're like, but you're a doctor, but whatever, fine. You can play around with that for 20% time. By the time 20-something years later, I went from 80% clinical, 20% executive time to the, the opposite. Almost 80% is physician executive, 20% clinical, and you know, had a great run at Northwestern. About a decade of the classic IT informatics, rolling out EMRs, et cetera, but then another decade setting up an innovation program. So I switched in between and said, I really have no desire to be a geeky informatics doc. I'm all about applying this stuff. And I started one of the earlier innovation programs where I got to apply all this cool technology as well as learn innovative thought processes, thinking, and apply it to how do we solve big problems in healthcare. Now, you were, it's funny, you were so far ahead of your time, at least from my construct. We had a kind of a, a time, a large urgent care company, and we went finally to an electronic health record in the early 2000s. And it felt like it was unheard of and we were just flying by the seat of our pants. Yeah. So you were I was way early. And good and bad, right? Being early like that is not necessarily successful. The best companies usually have really good timing and I was absolutely early. So I, yeah, I can call myself a futurist because I see the future, but it's not always great in today. In 1995, 96 in that era, my organization had no interest in, in EMR for our group. I actually wound up going to a dinner for this EMR company. And by the end of the dinner, I asked so many questions. They said, would you like to be our chief medical officer? And all of a sudden, I'm an executive in the EMR company learning about project management, product management, physician adoption. It was great. Had a wonderful boss and learned a lot as the doctor IT person. So I'm doing that two days a week, seeing patients three days a week. And again, getting my street MBA, so to speak, as this was a publicly traded company and was very early in the EMR space. So learning that helped me a lot later on when I'm evaluating the Cerners and Epics of the world and figuring out how to use them and customize them for my own group. Which EHR company was that? That was a company called Advanced Health Technologies. John, they talk about a futurist, the guy who founded it was a doctor who had the patent on e-prescribing that he got in the early 90s. So we actually had the patent prescribing. We were using Fujitsu hand handheld computers, mainly to do the ordering process, prescriptions, labs, et cetera. I was integrating in more of a note-taking process and really building out the whole EMR. It was actually going relatively well. The company also happened to have funded itself in part by being a physician practice management group. That PPM blew up in the mid nine, late 90s. That actually pulled us down. We would have actually probably, I think, had one of the best TMRs I've ever used in terms of work, ease of use, in yeah. terms of how it was developed and thought. I was very much, as in throughout my career, thinking about how do I make this easy to use for the doctor rather than focusing on how do I make it a good documentation tool? 
Exactly. And that's clearly that's what's lacking. So when we did it at Next Care, the Urgent Care, EHR became so easy to use and so streamlined. It was just it was almost too easy to use. And I worked with Cernic. I haven't worked with Epic too much, but those things don't exist anymore. They were clearly ahead of their game. That's pretty cool. When did you get this entrepreneurial bent to you? Because you clearly have it. No, I, like I said, I was not the kid who was selling t-shirts and mowing lawns in high school. You know, I just wasn't. I, you know, I had a regular job. It really, my entrepreneurial bent was a little more of a means to an end. I did take a course uh, at Penn and Wharton called Entrepreneurship. And I have to say, I loved it. it. Was I was an engineer. I'm like, this is the easiest course I've ever taken. This makes so much sense. This idea as an engineer, right? We're all about problem solving and fixing things and wanting to improve the world. So entrepreneurship felt like a natural extension to being able to say, okay, I can fix something bigger. I can make a bigger impact. And with that said, like a lot of things, like a Forrest Gump, I was at the right place at the right time and the right people liked me and hired me. And all of a sudden I'm learning along the way. That's very cool. What was your first large company that you really were integral where you went along the path for the informaticist? Was it MD Live or was that way later? That was definitely later. So that first company, and I was there for a couple yeah. of years that it would have gone well if the, if the stock didn't fall. And then I wound up going into another company called Proxicom, which was a e-business consulting company. They work with Fortune 500 companies and basically help them develop their internet and internet sites. Again, this is 98, 99. This is the, the boom era. This was so much fun, right? I was a millionaire on paper within a couple of weeks of starting. I set up their healthcare practice and you know, working with hospitals and pharma, et cetera. And so I was an important part of setting up that healthcare. And I thought, hey, this is not just healthcare. It does multiple industries. This will never fail. And then, of course, the 2000, 2001 came and it failed. But by that time, my hospital was ready to do an EMR and they brought me back. At that point, I started advising a bunch of digital health companies, so fractional chief medical officer advisor. But I always wanted to start something from scratch. I did uh, work with a, a friend of mine. I helped start as a sort of minor player, a couple of companies. But then the big one that I started in 2011 was HealthFinch, and that was a workflow automation software company. I had, was doing a lecture at a conference, a Mayo Innovation Conference, and a young grad student saw me, uh, also a biomedical engineer, and he said, hey, let's start a company on, on the, the, your ideas, and we did. All of a sudden, we start this company, we're fairly naive, we're building software to automate the refill process. So instead of making a doctor go in and review every week, refill, we said the rules to this and let's just integrate these rules. And I called it my sad philosophy to make doctors happy and patients healthy. It's how do you simplify, automate and delegate routine, repeatable workflows like that? They're often rules based. And all of a sudden we're saving doctors thousands of hours a week across you know, thousands of doctors. That was a great run. And that was a pure tech company that we built on purpose to be an app on top of EMRs. 2011, again, ahead of the game, but fortunately, timing was on my side this time, John. All scripts rolled out their yeah, app uh, system. Epic rolled out their app. Or Orchard Cerner opened up at Athena. All of these EMRs started saying, hey, we're looking for apps. We wound up winning All Scripts uh, Best App, uh, Athena Best App, becoming one of the first apps on Epic's App Orchard. Right place, right time. We proved that you could build something on top of EMRs, and it worked. We eventually sold that in 2020, and that had wow. a nice exit to Health Catalyst. 
Wow. And I was chairman and chief medical officer on the board, but I, I wasn't working full time there. It was something that I was able to nights and weekends be involved in, help move along. And then MD Live came along in 2017. And were you one of the founders? You weren't one of the founders of MD Live by that point, right? You, they hired you to be a... Oh, MD Live itself was started, I think, in the late 2000s. Yeah. So by the time I came along, it was 10 plus years old. They just hired a new CEO who I knew, and he asked me to come along and be his number two. And I came in as a chief medical officer and EVP of product and strategy. So ran a lot of both the operations and the product and strategy side and learned a ton. And it was the first time I was a full-time in the heat of it operator in a multi-million dollar company. And so it was a great learning experience, helped them raise money, help them stabilize, get operations under control, help them scale up four or five X from around 200,000 visits over a million visits a year and got the company to, you know, ready for what eventually wound up being a exit to Cigna. Yeah, that was a great exit for you guys. With all these things you've done, you've already been down a telemedicine road once plus, I'm sure. Why start key care? Do you think maybe the horizons already, we've already seen the rise and fall of telemedicine? Obviously not. When I left MD Live, I was like, I'm done with telehealth. I want to do something new. I was, this was the AI era was happening. I was really wanted to be focused on software, but you know, COVID was flaring yeah. and all of a sudden health systems, and I'm a health system guy, right? Health systems are doing tons of virtual care and it peaked high, but then was coming down and, and people are like, oh, no one wants to do virtual care anymore. I'm like, that's not true. People love virtual care. I saw that MD Live. I saw that in my own practice. In the 1990s, I was emailing with patients. This is before HIPAA. So I knew people loved the ability to do routine stuff online. Why wouldn't they? They do it with every other part of their life. In health systems, weren't really able to service that well because their doctors are, I call them officeologists. They're focused on the office. They'll do a little virtual care, but it's not their focus. And it's a cognitive dissonance to go back and forth. And they're not going to be optimally great virtualists, right? You, know, you and I both know virtualist doctors are a different breed. And that's okay. Just like hospitalists were a different breed in the 90s, just like ER docs separated themselves out at some point. I was visiting some of my friends at Epic and we got to talking about, hey, wouldn't it be cool to have a virtual care company that was based on Epic? Because then you get rid of all that interoperability issues and you can just really focus on building up great teams of virtualists and having them work in support to amplify and be a, a really good partner to health systems. Because our mission really is to build these tech-empowered virtual care workforce teams that support the health systems and all the great work they do. We decided, yeah, let's do it. And so that's how we started the company. I got some funding, started getting some people and then building out. And we got our own instance of Epic. We optimized it for virtual care, but we also optimized it to be of service to other Epic sites because there's new Epic functionality that allows two Epic sites, two Epic instances to really connect beautifully. And most people don't take advantage of that because most Epic sites are in competition with each other. We became a neutral third party that would take care of patients online, but send them back uh, for whatever care they needed off in the offices in a, a true hybrid um, approach to care. I love that. So you're basically doing after hours and support care to large tertiary care centers and health systems that have Epic, where you can be the white labeled white knights, so to speak. 
We are there when they need you. You're all virtualist. You're agnostic to the health system you're working for. Correct. So we get this economy of scale because we can have this, you know, a group that can manage, you know, 50 state, 24 by seven. And our group just has one single EMR they work in, Epic, but we can take incoming patients from any other Epic sites. Right. Over time, actually, and that's for urgent care. And urgent care is a little more treat them and move on. Um, As we move into primary care, behavioral health, and other things that have a uh, more consistency, we'll actually build teams that will work more consistently with the health system in support of their doctors. So it won't feel as anonymous. And we'll actually be able to do not only sharing data like notes and, and meds, we'll be able to send in orders and exchange messages and really be, feel like a true virtual care extender team to amplify the doctors in the offices, not simply to be a you know one-time use. Now, I know physicians get this and don't, won't feel like, oh, they're competing with us down the street, but I haven't met a lot of health plan or hospital executives who would be comfortable with, quote, outsourcing their care, even if it's virtual, because what they'll think is, oh, these guys are just Trojan horses. This is just a Trojan horse play. They want to come in and really take our behavioral health patients, take our internal medicine. You know where I'm going with this. How do you get around that? That's easy because that those third parties, they are absolutely doing that. They are trying to own the front door. Some of their mottos are, we want to be your virtual front door. I'm like, no, health system, we work with you. First of all, the patients come in through the health system front door. They don't send them to us. They literally come into the health system front door. Health system gets first choice for on-demand urgent care. Health systems have to send patients to us, schedule with us. They can schedule within their Epic instance with us. So we are not creating a brand. We don't spend money on marketing. We're not trying to brand ourselves. We're supporting them. We don't have brick and mortar facilities. So there's no way we can compete with them on the big stuff. The reality is what we're doing is expanding their capacity to take care of more patients. And we're taking care of the let's face it, the sort of lower value patients where they're going to lose money. But what they care about is when they are sick that they're going to come into the system. And since we're so well connected, it's just literally automatic. If we take care of the patient, their note goes into the system. Very good. So you're expanding their geographical footprint really exponentially. And your providers are effectively putting on the proverbial lab code of the health system whose patients are engaging with at that time. Is that a good way to say it? Like when they see a key care provider, the patients, you work for Penn or you work for whoever, because I went through Penn's front door. So we, you know, Wellspan uh, is a, a great client in, in Pennsylvania. Patients go through the Wellspan front door. They're told legally that say you're seeing our partner, Key Care. To them, it feels, oh, this is a partnership. They, these, this Key Care doctor, they know my history. They have got all my allergies, meds. Everything I do is uh, gets sent back to my doctor. It's in my chart portal. So to them, is not only feels, but functionally, it is a truly collaborative, coordinated experience that is essentially in the same system that they're used to. Particularly for urgent care, which are episodic visits anyway. That's interesting. And then you think about it, as we move to primary care, it'll be an even closer connection where we might have a primary care team that's supporting Dr. Smith in the office, and they'll actually communicate. And Dr. Smith may tell his patient, hey, you're going to see Dr. Jones. He's part of my team. He and Mary and Kelly are the key care team. They're going to manage you 
You don't need to see me every two months. They'll take care of you online. Come and see me once a year. And that way, I'll have more room and opportunity to see new patients uh, while you're being managed quite effectively and quite easily um, by the online group. And if you ever have a, a major problem, you'll come back in. One reason I gave up being a primary care doctor was because I realized I was just babysitting patients, so to speak, and seeing a lot of patients who I just filled their scripts and moved them on, but I wasn't adding value. I wasn't working at the top of my license. Team-based care, population health, these aren't new ideas, but they haven't been executed well, in part because the offices have limited space. We're hoping to execute it well by being virtual and then tech-empowering our virtualists to be even more efficient. That's really a very cool model. And then how are you compensated for this? Is it a per member per month with the health plan's members? So it's up to them to direct what they want to? Or is it a episodic per engagement? Yeah, so there are a couple of different ways we can be compensated. So depending on who the sponsor is, we can charge the patient directly, self-pay. We can charge the hospital or payer sponsorship. We can do it either as a PM or as a per visit. And we can actually work with the hospital and assign billing to the hospital so that they, the hospital, can actually bill under their contracts and pay us our fee while they keep the difference. Right. And then they get, they expand, you talked about their geographic footprint. That's very cool. So they expand their reach and they do it in a way that is profitable for them at the same time, both direct as well as the indirect, just by having more capacity. Yeah, totally. And probably a much better patient experience if the patients are sitting home, not venturing out into the cold, dark world and for the urgent care. So while I mentioned this before we started, there's going to be a lot of physicians, and I think you and I both have talked to a lot of them over the years, who say, I, I just don't even know how to start. Like, I'm entrepreneurial. I think I've got some good ideas. I want to contribute. I see the bigger picture. I want to do more population-based things in these one-off patient encounters. What advice would you give them? Because you're clearly an outlier in this world. I'll tell you what worked for me was not doing it all at once, basically doing what the kids call a side hustle. It's very hard for a doctor in a regular practice to all of a sudden go into business. Yep. It rarely ever works. What I did early in my career and people can do later is say, hey, I'll do part-time. I'll do one day a week, a couple hours. The truth is it's much easier for an ER doc and or a hospitalist where they have designated time. As a primary care doc, it was not easy. There was a lots of balancing and lots of nights and weekends, but I loved it. My best advice is start slow, find a scenario where you can do some things. And you may find, by the way, that's the most fun you can have. If you're working 10, 20% with a company, doing thought leadership, providing strategy support, et cetera, that's actually a lot of fun. Once you go in full-time, you're an operator. And this, John, all of a sudden you're dealing with yeah. you know, someone complaining over here, an HR issue over here, and payroll over here, preparing for the board. You become more of a business person. And uh, a lot of doctors aren't ready for that. And they're certainly not ready to be yelled at by someone else. They haven't had that happen since they were an intern. So a lot of doctors are used to being the smartest guy in the room. You go, unless you're the CEO, even if you are the CEO, it doesn't matter anymore. You're never going to be the, the only smart guy in the room. In many cases, you, know, you may find a very unnerving experience. So my advice, start slow, have some fun with it, do some part-time work to start with, be a fractional chief medical officer or something similar. That may be all you need to refresh, reboot yourself and may find that's not something you want to do full-time, but part-time may make a lot of sense. For me, and I think possibly for you, it was for me this a way to stem burnout. 
I was an EM physician. There's a lot of burnout. I think there's a lot of burnout across medicine, period. But EM seems like it's rife with it. I can't say I've really ever felt burned out about doing it. Now, I do it a lot less now than I used to. But even while going to school and starting these businesses, I don't remember days where I'm like, oh, God, another ER shift. It was always, oh, thank God, I get to do something really cool and go in the emergency department. Did you have that perspective? Quite honestly, it felt like you guys had a lot of different opportunities to see some cool stuff, but the burnout, I can imagine, is high. And I was very fortunate because from day one, I always had these other jobs and other things to do and balance that made me really happy. I also, as a doctor, I wound up taking care of movies and TV shows, like just anything to break up the day sometimes was fun for me. Some doctors, and God bless them, they can just go to the same office for 50 years and be happy. Not, not all of us can. I knew I had to balance things. And I was fortunate. I had amazing bosses, uh, doctors, you know, executives at Northwestern, who about every five years, let me you know, essentially change what I was doing and focusing on. And that was why I, I was able to be there so long. I will say one thing I wish I had done, and one thing I would strongly advise to doctors who are feeling burned out, is take one to two months off. I know that seems crazy, incredible, but your health system will probably support that. Now, maybe they'll not pay you, but when I have done something where I was able to leave my practice, and I did this about 10 years in, I left my practice, the my hospital and my group had asked me to set up our executive health program. So I left my regular practice. I wrote a goodbye letter to patients. I went in and did that. And again, it wasn't sabbatical, but it was a very different thing. I realized after a few months, I'm like, boy, I miss my practice. Executive health is fine, but yeah, it's a bunch of, now it's even more boring. It's I see two patients a day for three hours each and they're 50 something year old white males. That wasn't what I was born to do. So I actually left and went back to my practice and wrote like Michael Jordan. I wrote, I'm back. I was so refreshed for another 10 years when I left MD Live just for a month, just did nothing, went with friends, skied, et cetera. Your mind clears. So many businesses do this. Epic is well known. Every five years, you get a one plus month sabbatical. Why don't we do that in healthcare? Why don't we give our doctors a break? Why do we let them burn out like that when even a couple of weeks of gain away from it will help them re-energize in various ways and not have to feel like, oh, I want to go into business all of a sudden? Yeah, that's phenomenal advice and a great construct that Epic has because you're absolutely right. Even a couple of weeks, I think people will return refreshed. I can only imagine what a month or two would feel like. So, now, what's the trajectory of key care? How's it going to look? If you had to just wave your magic wand, what would it wave? Yeah, I'm waving my wand, right? You know, first, we're in growth mode. We, we're signing up health systems. There are about 625 health systems in the US, around 400 use Epic. My hope is, hey, how do I get 15, 20 years signed up? And so at the end of five years, I'm at 80, 100 health systems. And each of those health systems, you know, giving us a fraction of their care, not even giving up anything, just letting us help expand because we have access issues. So we're not stealing from anybody. We're just expanding how many patients they can manage. The biggest problem we have, so to speak, or the biggest barrier we have is health systems who say, oh, we can do this ourselves, or doctors who feel like, hey, you're stealing my easy patients. I have what I call the 3C approach to that. C number one is that they're only going to want to give up patients if it's a clinically connected team. They don't want patients just to go to some random non-connected group. We, key care, can give them that. We can give them a clinically connected team to make them feel confident in the quality and the coordination. The second and third C's are really up to the health system. Um, the second C is 
comp redesign, physician compensation redesign. We have to get off this treadmill of RVUs and paying our doctors simply based on volume. It has to figure out how do we pay them based on the panel size that they manage, the quality of care that they manage, because you get what you pay for. If a doctor knew that sending a patient to a key care team would, you know, if they lose money doing it, why would they do that? If they're incentivized, though, that it helps them understand that's how they increase their panel size, because that's what we need to do in this world to be able to take care of everybody, then now they're well aligned. And they know that team can also do a lot of the routine care that most doctors don't have time to do. Most doctors, I think the estimate is it would take a doctor 26 and a half hours to take care of their panel size of 2,000 patients. It makes no sense. They need a tech-empowered virtual team. And the third C is culture, and that's patients, staff, doctors, culture, education on change management, that a, a team, a virtual team is actually good care. It actually allows you as a system to take better care of a patient on a more consistent basis. So all those things have to come into play. I often say, we don't have a shortage of physicians, we have a shortage of using them efficiently. And if we can align the technology, the incentives, and the cultural acceptance, we actually can save healthcare um, well, from these access issues because we're not making more doctors, it's not happening. And so we've got to rethink how we address the problem. So well, final question for you. A lot of physicians are very scared of AI and they're scared of it because, hey, it's going to take my job. What are you telling medical students these days as far as specialties to go into where AI will be less penetrated? So I always say things like interventional radiology. Probably don't have a robot do that. But for a lot of the thought specialties, we were talking beforehand about how to use AI to make the provider more efficient. What are you telling medical students as far as residencies go or specialties? Well, I'll tell you why. I've always been careful about not getting caught in the trap of saying, oh, yeah, I always say, and I'm sure you say the same thing, go in where your heart is, go right. in where you love it, because there's always going to be room for a great doctor. I remember when we were coming out, they said, no one should go into anesthesiology. It's overcrowded. The few guys who went in killed it. And okay. by the way, why they kill it? Because they figured out to use a tech-empowered delegated team, and all of a sudden, one there's a shortage, one anesthesiologist can run five teams. So the idea of team-based care is not new. Surgeons do it, anesthesiologists, dermatologists, ophthalmologists do it. But in the end, you got to tell someone, go where you hurt, go what you love to do. Don't go yeah. because you think something's going to make more money. With that said, you know, keep your eyes open um, and understand that you know, at the very least, the doctor who uses AI is going to beat out the doctor who doesn't use AI. If and when AI completely replaces doctors or a lot, it's probably replacing almost all of society at that point. The truth is what I think is with AI, we can really take care of more of the routine stuff uh, in a hyper-efficient way while we can let our doctors focus top of license. My, the future I envision is not helping a doctor go from 22 to 24 patients a day. That's not what they want. Mm -hmm. They don't love the idea of saying, oh, tech can help me see a few more patients a day. I want them to see less patients a day because I want them to see the patients that really need them where they make a difference. In a typical doctor's life of a primary care doctor, 20 patients a day, 100 patients a week, there's probably 20% of those that where they can really make a difference day to day, but they can really make a difference. And unfortunately, if they only have 15 minute visits, they may not be able to make a difference. So what if their team 
could manage those other 80, you know, 50, 80% of patients, and they could focus on the 20 to 50% who really need them in the office. And instead of doing 15-minute visits, they can do 30 or 45-minute visits and truly make a difference because the real art of the physician is not the diagnosis. That's usually the easy part. And particularly in primary care, it is weaving together the right plan for that patient in a variety of ways. The truth is, Empathy and compassion and uh, an understanding important. AI is getting good at that too. But again, the best doctors are going to be able to bring all those things together. Maybe we'll be at a time when there certainly won't be a doctor shortage, but we're, we're not close to that yet. No, I agree with you. I mean, using the technology we have today and where it's going, it should make us more efficient, but hopefully less busy. So we can spend more time doing what we all signed up to do, which was really interacting with patients and helping them on their journey. It could be the, the robots and interventional stuff that might wind up being an injection that, boom, takes yeah. care of those. And those okay. we'll, we'll retrain those guys as a primary care docs. I love yeah. it. Sticking with the nanobots. Hey, where can people learn more about you? Because you've got an incredibly distinguished qu- uh, career. My personal site is www.drlyle.com. And then uh, KeyCare is www.keycare.org. It's funny, years ago when I was young and a new doctor, and my friends called me Dr. Lyle. That's my first name. They may call you Dr. John at some point. And one of my friends happened to own an ISP. And for the kids on the audience, the internet service providers used to have one like every few blocks that you needed to have one of these guys to call into to get the internet. And as a birthday gift, as a gag, he got me the website, drlyle.com. So that just became my brand. And uh, over the years, I've updated the website and got some good, smart people to do something on it. And uh, it just became an easy brand for me. That's very cool. Bob, you were very ahead of the curve. Very impressive. Well, Al, this has been a blast talking to you. Thank you. I know our paths will continue to intersect. Thanks for listening to another great edition of Entrepreneur Rx. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnshufeldmd.com. Thanks for listening.